0: You're listening to a sermon from the Pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. And this morning we're going to be looking together at chapter 15 and the first five verses. You'll find this on page 923 of the Pew Bible. We're looking at Acts chapter 15 and verses 1 through 5. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Well, if you've been here during our exposition of the book of Acts, you know that we learned that no one enters the kingdom of God unless God reaches out his own divine hand. Paul and Barnabas reported to the church all that God had done with them And in many places throughout the ancient world, they had been instruments of conversion. In verse 27 of chapter 14, it said God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Sinners had been outwardly called by the word of God, and they've been inwardly drawn by the Holy Spirit of God. And unless both of those things take place, a sinner like you and me has no hope of benefiting from the gospel. Inward call, outward call. Paul and Barnabas's ministry in it, many had experienced both of those, inward and outward call, which confirmed their ministry. Paul says to the Corinthians at one point, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. So the conversion of souls and the existence of the church proves the legitimacy of any work. In other words, the fruitfulness of a ministry is one of the best ways to evaluate the ministry. This one included. And I'm not talking just about numbers. That's part of it. But is there growth? growth? Is there depth? Is there love for Christ? Is the word of God cherished? Is the law of God esteemed? Is there decency and order in the worship of God? Do we do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with our God? And is there sound instruction and spiritual edification? Do God's people grow in maturity? That's one way to evaluate a ministry. Can you observe... In the members of a church or this church, the joy of the Spirit. That's one way to evaluate a ministry because Jesus says you will recognize them by their fruits. Not all of us are theologians, most of us are not trained, but we can see fruit. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. And in their report, Paul and Barnabas acknowledged the good fruit of the Spirit's power. There had been evidence of both the outward call and the inward call. God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And according to what Jesus said to the Pharisees, He Himself is the way in. He said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So there is no other way into the kingdom of God than through Jesus Christ. By faith in him, a believer comes into covenant and communion with God. He'll be saved on the day of judgment. She'll be delivered from the wrath to come. For him and her, divine justice has been satisfied by the obedience and the death of Christ. And the door separates those who were on the inside from those who were on the outside. The door, Jesus. On the inside, they enjoy the benefit and advantage of eternal life. What an incredible thing. On the outside... They're exposed to endless privation, misery, and wrath. And if anybody wants to enter, they must do so by way of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that. We've heard it countless times, at least those of us who have been in the church. And Jesus is the door of faith, and he alone is the way to eternal life. And no finite human imagination, it's you and me, no finite imagination Is able to conceive of the unparalleled joys of heaven. Just as we can't conceive of the unspeakable terror of hell, we can't conceive of the unparalleled joy of heaven. That that which Adam failed to obtain is what the second Adam secured life. And it's everlasting. That's the heaven of heaven, isn't it? It's everlasting. And nothing less than this was at stake in the controversy highlighted in this text. Nothing less. Chapter 15 forms the center of the book of Acts. It was the first great controversy in which the church corporately and officially refuted heresy. And here... The great doctrine of justification by faith is formally and officially set forth. This truth is the heart and soul of the gospel. It is the hinge and the pillar of our salvation. Justification by faith. You know the question if you've done any catechetical work. What is justification? It is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And any error with regard to that truth is very dangerous, if not fatal. It's like a defect in the foundation of a building. The whole thing collapses. Justification by faith in Jesus Christ, according to Thomas Watson, is a spring of the water of life. And if any error poisons the spring, those who drink it will likely die. So from this point on, the focus in the book of Acts will be on the spread of this truth to the ends of the earth. The Jerusalem Council here is as much a watershed event as the conversion of the Apostle Paul himself. So, when they returned to Antioch, they remained no little time with the disciples, according to the end of chapter 14, and they must have been busy preaching and teaching and ministering house to house. And at some point, the Judeans started teaching the necessity of circumcision. That was a different gospel. It wasn't the good news of justification by faith that we just outlined. They said that if you wanted to be saved, Gentile, you have to be circumcised, males. And by the way, that's why they're called Judaizers, because they promoted Judaism. They required adherence to the Mosaic ceremonies and the Jewish rituals. You're obligated. And not surprisingly, they clashed with Paul and Barnabas. Luke quickly summarizes the events, but I think the disruption had to be enormous because circumcision had not been required of the first converts at Antioch. They simply believed in Jesus. They were baptized and received into membership. Then come the Judaizers and they say, that's not enough. You have to follow the Mosaic law. We've done this for thousands of years. No, these are men from the mother church in Jerusalem. Shouldn't we listen to them? But the controversy threatened to tear apart the Antioch church. And it was confusing. Paul Barnabas, men from the mother church. What do we do? So the church decided wisely to send delegates to Jerusalem to hammer out the issue because the matter was far too important to be decided locally by a few. What was needed was a general assembly comprised of the apostles and all the elders to come together and to work it out. And so they gathered the multitude of leaders together to consider this, and that is biblical Presbyterianism. We're told in Proverbs 11, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. A church without a plurality of counselors is like a ship without a captain. David and Solomon, we all know they were kings. When you think of a king, you think sovereign. But David and Solomon ruled their kingdoms with wise counselors. The more such counselors we have, naturally or ordinarily, the more safe is our decision. So the church recognized the need for a great plurality to determine the issue. And later on, the fruit of their labors would be expressed by way of letter. And that letter would be sent to all the churches and binding on all the congregations. And perhaps I can state the issue succinctly by posing this question. Here's the issue. How are Gentiles, non-Jews, to be accepted into Christian fellowship? I think most of us are Gentiles. How are we to be accepted into Christian fellowship? Before God, we're forgiven and accepted by faith in the Lord Jesus. But in the visible church, how are we to be welcomed into membership? How are we to profess our faith, to have the assurance of salvation? Must we be circumcised and required to observe the Jewish rituals? That's a yoke. Or must we simply profess faith in Jesus, swearing allegiance to him? You know something? Attendance at this council required a trip of more than 250 miles. That's a long way on foot. In the ancient world, it probably took a number of days, if not weeks. And all along the way, the men are visiting congregations and encouraging the brethren And all these little churches were themselves the fruit of missionary efforts. And those who heard the news of the Gentile conversions naturally rejoiced. They're encouraging Christians all along the way. Because something inside us, as we noticed in Sunday school this morning, wells up with gratitude and gladness when we hear the conversion of others. And those small congregations celebrated the conversions among the Gentiles and they had no reservations about how those new converts were admitted to believe in Christ. When the delegates arrived in Jerusalem, they were well received in the presence of all. They rehearsed what God had done. God's sovereign grace. The Lord had given much growth. It was proof that what they were preaching was the gospel. Jesus said, you'll recognize them by their fruits. What was done with God's blessing must have been according to his will. That's the logic of what they were doing. The believing Gentiles received the blessing of the spirit. They turned from God, from idols, turned to God, from idols to serve the living and true God. And the professions of faith and the changed lives were evidence of the truth. But the Judaizers were skeptical. How could you part from Moses? Thousands of years of adherence. Wiped away. Gone? Don't they have to join the covenant community by being circumcised? Aren't they obligated to observe the ceremonies? These are things that distinguish Jews from all other people. Circumcision, dietary laws, feasts, calendar observances. So the Jerusalem council has to decide whether or not these are required. And a lot was at stake. More than we probably know. Not least was the gospel itself. So I want us to consider the four basic truths that characterize the gospel that informed their decision. Four basic truths. Number one, we have to consider, as they did, the character of God who is absolutely holy. I'm not holy. He is. He is set apart from and opposed to sin, and there is no taint of sin in him. That's our doctrine. John says God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. The Jews would praise him by singing, who is like you, majestic in holiness. In heaven, you know, the angels never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's thrice holy. He is intensely holy. He's unflinchingly holy. And he doesn't waver. And you and I nor the Jerusalem council can understand the gospel unless we understand the holiness of God. He cannot approve or tolerate sin in my life. And if he did so, he would deny himself. That means by implication, and you have to agree with this, that no sin will escape his righteous and just punishment, not even the least, every careless word. He revealed himself to Moses by saying, in part, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And over and over again, the Bible teaches us that sinners will endure a heavy penalty. And there will be no exceptions. God's holiness is absolutely unbending. That's why the Apostle says in Hebrews 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And if we could, all we'd have to do is ask Judas. When he realized the enormity of his crime, he cried out in agony, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And you and I both know that Judas's grief was not motivated by love for God, it was a sense of his holiness. There sprang up in Judas's soul a fearful expectation of judgment. He had committed a heinous crime. And he knew that there would be a reckoning. And he was terrified. As he should have been. As all believers should, unbelievers should be. Because as Psalm 99 teaches us, the Lord our God is holy. That's the first truth. Baseline, he's holy. Second truth, we have to consider the nature of man who is thoroughly depraved. We are by nature diametrically opposed to the holiness of God. I was converted to 23. I know what it was like. I was opposed. Didn't want to hear it. Never thought about it. Could care less about it. Every facet of the human nature is tainted with sin and nothing is left untouched. Think of Genesis 6, 5. This is such a comprehensive statement. There... It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It says nothing about deeds. It said nothing about words. He's focusing in on the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And he waited patiently for 120 years as Noah built the ark and preached righteousness. And they thought nothing but evil all the time. I think that means that the breadth and depth of the stream of sin that flows in our hearts is more than we know. And this hideous disease pervades and runs through every part of our souls. It was the reason that God flooded the earth. It's the reason behind mankind being totally depraved. And yet after the flood, the situation hadn't even changed because judgment can never change anybody. In Genesis 8, post-flood, God said the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And whether or not you agree with it, the Bible teaches that every human being is conceived and born in sin. Each life is filled with sin. Every one of these beautiful covenant children, sinners, every one. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17. And the Apostle Paul states emphatically that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So each and every person in this world and in this room is as depraved as all the others. Makes no difference who you are, where you're from, how advantaged you may be. There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins, Ecclesiastes 7.20. We're born this way. From the womb, we stand guilty before God and corrupt. Remember, he's holy. And every thought and intention of our heart before we're converted is wicked, and there are no exceptions. And if we're rightly to understand the gospel, we have to grapple with this truth. In Pilgrim's Progress, it's a fantastic book, as you know, Christian is explaining to ignorance that we should pass the same judgment upon ourselves that God's word passes upon us. That's important. And ignorance says to Christian, I will never believe that my heart is this bad. And Christian responds, Therefore, you never had one good thought concerning yourself and your life. Because you don't agree with the Bible. So we're guilty, corrupt, deserving of punishment, and without hope save in His mercy. And most people go wrong either with regard to God's holiness or man's sin. One or the other, they usually go wrong with. They downplay God's holiness or they gloss over man's depravity. He's a God of mercy. I'm a decent person, it's all gonna work out. People think that if they're not as bad as their neighbor, they'll be okay. Oh, you should see my next door neighbor, man, he's really bad. Not mine, that's just hypothetical. (laughs) I have a good next door neighbor, believe me, if he's watching. (laughs) God is not only the fountain of goodness and the reservoir of mercy, but he is a just judge. And he demands the utmost perfection of every duty. And he forbids the least degree of any sin. And whereas human judges may bend the rules or relax the penalty. Not God. His justice is inflexible. His righteousness is unyielding. Remember, he said, I will not clear the guilty so that no sin will go unpunished. Every sin will receive its just desert, And the passage of time cannot wipe away the guilt of a sin against God. You know, a thief, a thief is just as guilty 40 years after the crime as he was the moment he committed it. Time doesn't erase the guilt. Try as we might, a sense of guilt for sins committed doesn't fade away. Eric Fromm, he's a, he was a German social psychologist, no Christian, uh, came to America, and he wrote this. It is indeed amazing that in as fundamentally an irreligious culture as ours, the sense of guilt... Should be so widespread and deep rooted as it is. He got it. Man's sinful nature. God is holy, man is depraved. Third, we have to consider the sacrifice of Christ who made atonement for sin. God, being thrice holy, cannot accept man who is totally depraved. As we read this morning, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? As sinners, we talked about in Sunday school, we become debtors to the inflexible justice of God. We have a debt. Who likes to be in debt? Neither you nor I can make the least satisfaction for that debt. Not the least. As David says at the beginning of the Psalter, the wicked will not stand. The unredeemed sinner will fall under the infinite weight of divine wrath. And the endless punishment of hell is the just penalty of the least sin. Oh, that sin's not too bad. It's kind of respectable. No, the least sin. Our purest thoughts, our best words, our greatest deeds, even as Christians, are imperfect and defiled in the sight of God. And woe to the sinner who departs this world having to face that strict justice. (laughs) I don't want to do that. I don't think you do either. To stand in the presence of God, we have to be clothed with an alien righteousness, to use the language of Martin Luther. A righteousness outside of ourselves. A righteousness that's imputed to us. It's alien to us. The term imputed, as you know, can mean deposited in another person's account. So if I deposit $100 in your account... That money is considered yours. The banker doesn't care who put it there. All he cares about is that it's in your account. It's your money. Well, Adam's sin was deposited in my account and in the account of all of his descendants imputed. did not matter how it got there. You're guilty and so am I. His imputed guilt is considered my guilt. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And you may not think that's fair, but then neither is salvation in Jesus. Christ's righteousness is deposited to the account of every elect believer. And thus his imputed righteousness is considered my righteousness. By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And therefore, you and I, in light of the holiness of God and the depravity of man, were saved through the suffering and obedience of a Christ applied by faith. Psalm 130. Pastor Pilon read it this morning. If you, O Lord... Should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Rhetorical question, nobody. But, he goes on to say, with you, there is forgiveness. Christ fulfilled the law that we were obligated to obey. And Christ bore the divine wrath that we deserved to bear. In the pages of the Gospels, we see his agony and his bloody head, his nailed hands, his spiked feet, his pierced side. And as he bore our sins, the father turned his back and abandoned him. And that's when he cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so Jesus died as a substitute for every believer who trusts in him. For undeserving sinners, he endured the pains of death and the penalty of hell, and nothing more is needed. No circumcision. It's finished, he said. God is satisfied and we're free. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what's interesting is that truth will have a dramatic and lasting effect upon the life of a sincere believer. Some of you know David Brainerd. He was a missionary to the Indian tribes in the 18th century. David Brainerd spent his brief life ministering to American Indians, and he wrote this in his journal. He says, and I quote, I never got away from Jesus and him crucified. When my people were gripped by this great evangelical doctrine of Christ and him crucified, I had no need to give them instructions about morality. I found that one followed as the sure and inevitable fruit of the other. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all, training us to renounce ungodliness, Titus 2. That's the third truth. And finally, and in closing, I tell you the fourth. We must consider that salvation is ours by faith in Christ Jesus. That is to say, in light of the holiness of God, and the depravity of man, and the sacrifice of Christ, if we are to be justified and spared from hell, We must receive and rest upon him. Romans 3, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You can't atone for past sins and neither can I. We can't perform the duty going forward. Every day we fail. The only way to find forgiveness and to enjoy life is by trusting in Christ. King Louis XIV, king of France. King Louis XIV spent his life in the pursuit of immorality and wickedness. Wicked king. His transgressions were many. His guilt was heavy and death was approaching. The historian tells us that during his final hours on earth, these things began to weigh upon him. One day, as, one day the king, as he was recovering from a temporary loss of consciousness, he was going in and out of consciousness on his deathbed. He asked his confessor, Pere Tellier, to give him absolution for all his sins. Pierre Tellier asked him if he suffered much. No, replied the king. That's what troubles me. I should like to suffer more for the expiation of my sins. You see, King Louis XIV got it wrong. He was at the edge of eternity, on the brink of doom. He wanted atonement for his sins. And he thought mistakenly that a few hours of mere human agony could satisfy for all his guilt. Sadly, as far as we know, he never repented. He never looked to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and therefore he eventually perished, as far as we know. Faith in Christ without circumcision will be the conclusion drawn by the council. The Judaizers were wrong. They were advocating a different gospel, and Paul says that if even we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. We need not trust in good behavior or moral conduct or a kind disposition or circumcision or anything else before the judgment seat of God will be accepted and forgiven only by the righteousness of Christ apprehended, and applied by faith. And that is a gracious offer. May all of us respond to it and accept these terms. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel, and we're grateful for the Jerusalem Council at such an early date, coming to the right conclusion. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and your gracious offer to forgive us, to accept us, and to bless us in him. We pray that all might receive him, for we ask it in his name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.